our big area of opportunity is we're probably always going to have some sort of disease profile. Just that's the you know where we have the kind of pig density that we tend to raise pigs in. So it's really more about what things can we do to manage around that. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Chris Rademacher, who is the clinical professor, swine veterinarian, and associate director of the Iowa Pork Industry Center at Iowa State University. How are you today, Chris? I'm great, Laura. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being able to be on with you today. Oh, I'm glad to have you here today, Chris. Um, for some of our audience, they may not be familiar with you, so would you mind giving them a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah, um, so I was born and raised in southwestern Minnesota. I attended undergraduate college at the University of Minnesota, and then I entered um, uh, the University of Minnesota College of Veterinary Medicine in 1994. And I was entering just at the time that a neighbor of mine was leaving. His name was Brad Frecking. So Brad was graduating from veterinary school, and he was leaving to start a company called New Fashion Pork. So I really had the really fortunate opportunity to spend my four years going to school there, um, up there at the U, and then kind of watching Brad uh, grow New Fashion Pork. And then when I graduated in 1998, he provided me with the opportunity, as he was really busy growing that company, to really come back home and... Uh, work for him as a veterinarian. But at that time, we were a pretty small company. We really had just a thousand sows and we're buying wean pigs and feeder pigs on the open market. And, and any of you that were around in 1998 kind of remember what happened in 1998. You know, the hog market went through a major correction cycle, which actually provided an op a unique opportunity uh, for Brad to expand his operations. So, but at that time I was a veterinarian, but I was also a territory or a service manager too. So I was calling on contract growers and all that, which was actually a fantastic opportunity for me. I think I learned more the first six months out of veterinary school than I learned the whole 20 years before that. You know, when they say the old adage about drinking out of a fire hose, that's really what I was doing. But I, I really was learning so much, you know, not just about veterinary medicine, but about practical pig production and relationships with contract growers and with employees and and really learning how to influence people and, and trying to help them solve problems and get them to do what, you, what you're kind of wanting them to do. So really had a fantastic opportunity to spend time with Brad. And, and as he really grew that business kind of in that night through the late 90s and early 2000s. So I spent 11 years there as uh, the director of veterinary services. And then uh, we were fortunate enough to hire Dr. Deb Murray. On, and I knew at that point it was my time. Uh, I was going to be supplanted. It was 
anybody who knows Dr. Murray knows that she's extremely bright and extremely talented. So at that point, I had a unique opportunity as Dr. Roger Main had left Murphy Brown, which was the uh, live production arm for Smithfield Foods, uh, the Western operations, which was based out of Ames. He left uh, a position on the management team, which was the director of production improvement. He left that to come and run the become the director of operations for Iowa State uh, Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. So I had the opportunity to backfill that position, which was was tough because that was obviously New Fashion was where I was born and raised back in that area. So I had a lot of family there, but it really was a unique opportunity for me to kind of grow and push myself. I actually had a a friend and colleague of mine that came to visit me about a year before I left and looked at me and said, you're too comfortable. And I said, wow, what are you talking about? And this is really something I think for, you know, for anybody in, in your chosen profession, it's kind of like if you're not stretching yourself, you really need to ask yourself, you know, should I, is, should I really be that comfortable? Or if, if my goal is, you know, lifelong learning and continuous improvement, should I be doing something else? And I kind of thought uh, it was actually Dr. Barry Wiseman, uh, who works uh, for Triumph Foods now. And I thought at first, I thought he was crazy. But lo and behold, about a year later, I had a new position. And once again, was found myself drinking from the fire hose, um, uh, working for the Western operation. So that position was really unique because it provided the opportunity to work with, uh, um, with a team of 11 veterinarians that worked in 10 different states, about 350,000 sows. So I worked with a team of uh, veterinarians, which was really unique, uh, but also had the chance to work with the uh, research team, both within the Eastern and Western operations <clears throat> at that point. So that was something that really interested me as a, uh, a production veterinarian. You know, we really don't get any of that classical uh, trial design and research uh, opportunity. So I looked at that was an, an area of personal interest for me uh, to to try to learn. And obviously we had uh, three PhD nutritionists sitting there with Dr. Steve Pullman, who became, became uh, my boss and Dr. Bart Borg and Dr. Gary Bradley. So, and then I had another young veterinarian, Dr. Marlon Hoagland, who had sat on that, uh, that team as well. So I had four people to really push and push, push me and it really helped challenge me and helped taught me a lot uh, again. So I got, had the opportunity to spend uh, five years doing that. Um, and then uh, when the um, uh, opportunity came uh, to join Iowa State University in December of 2014. Then I accepted that position at that time. So I've been with Iowa State. Well, I'll be coming up here about seven and a half years working at the College of Veterinary Medicine uh, as a clinical professor. But then what the other thing I really enjoy about my position working with the Iowa Pork Industry Center, it was the ability to collaborate across campus uh, working with the College of Ag and the and the uh, Ag Econ Department and the and the uh, engineering group and with yourself, Laura, I really that's kind of unique. Uh, what we have here at Iowa State, I think, is I've had some older uh, faculty members say that doesn't happen, you know, on every college campus. So we have a really tight knit group, and the Iowa Pork Industry Center really does a nice job of of being able to provide those collaborative opportunities. So once again, now I have a bigger pool of people to, uh, you know, get to learn from and challenge me and challenge my thought process. So I really appreciate the opportunity and love what I'm doing right now. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. 
The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to Genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Yeah, that's, that's a great history of, of where you've been. And, and I think it, especially knowing what you're doing today, I think it, it, it tells that story, right? Where, where your passion comes from and why you're passionate about the things that you're doing today. Um, and, and certainly knowing you, your, your involvement right now is focused on how do we help sow mortality and how do we help get those young pigs started and how do we really service that that general mortality question where maybe it's not so much you know dealing with the PED of the world but just how do we get pigs in a healthier position so that when diseases do come along they are better able to to handle that um, so I think what I want to do is maybe jump over to let's start with that early weaned or not early weaned pig but the weaned pig right after after it's weaned so you know, what do you see in terms of some of the challenges today in, in handling that nursery pig? Yeah, uh, it's really been interesting to kind of watch the evolution of that. You know, as I was kind of getting into vet school, that was in the early to mid 90s. So, you know, at that time, PERS was just kind of getting to be the mystery swine disease, you know, and, and there was this whole revolution, you know, at that time about this, this technology called medicated early weaning. And, you know, we could get rid of uh, mycoplasma and APP if we wean pig younger and we could put more pigs through the sow farm and, you know, and we could, you know, really churn out a lot of pigs in a year. And I, that was all great, made a lot of sense, you know, but certainly what we, what we, what we learned from that was we can do that, but we didn't really understand the physiology about how to feed that pig and how, you know, how to really keep a pig that young alive. And I think, you know, PERS has kind of become the great equalizer among that too, which is to say, um, boy, we're not sure we can keep a pig like that. You know, uh, we can really do a good job of, of keeping that pig alive in that post weaning time period very well with those type of health challenges that we have with that. So, uh, you know, I think that was one of the things that, that we saw, I know, as, as Dr. Main was getting his PhD at, at Kansas State. And, and I'll, uh, I'll never forget the ASV meeting that I went to. It was one of those things where you sit there and, and you say, okay, well, he's got this data and it shows when he weans pig older, the mortality goes down. You know, well, we have pay, these farms that go through PERS breaks and after the PERS breaks, you know, they we, we have a bunch of abortions and we don't have as many sows, you know, that wean and, and we can keep them in the farrowing crates longer. And guess what? Our mortality goes down, you know, so it was kind of interesting to see kind of real world applications of that research. And and, you know, I think, you know, we've seen, I think as an industry, everybody's kind of moved from that 16, 17 day up to, you know, 21, 22 days, not everybody, but you've maybe seen the industry average move that way. And in some systems, particularly ones that, you know, battle endemic diseases or in really pig dense areas, they've taken that up to 24 to 26 day uh, age, uh, wean age, and, and really have seen some nice mortality reductions from that. Now, certainly that comes as a cost is, you know, you're not probably going to be able to put out as many pigs from your sow farm as a year, but per year and your PSY might not look as good, but you know, when 70% of your cost of production is in, you know, uh, you know, raising pigs to market, you know, if you're a farrow to finish producer, that's, that's where, that's where, you, you know, you've got to make sure that that side of that is really profitable. So, so, but yeah, we still got lots of challenges for sure. Even with older uh, wean pigs, I do think that is one area of opportunity, you know, even looking at, 
all the research that gets done out there, you know, there's only a couple of things, Laura, that I've seen that have a very linear uh, response, you know, stocking density being one and wean age being the other, right? The older those pigs get or the more space we give them, you know, the better they survive and the faster they grow and the more efficient they are with, with uh, you know, con- they are converting feed generally as well. So I think that kind of thing helps. But, you know, the other thing we've seen, you know, kind of parallel to that was, you know, moving pigs to wean to finish, you know, even in those, particularly in uh, Smithfield at that time, you know, moving contract growers over, you know, getting them to try to, you know, make 16 to 17 day old pigs work in wean to, wean to finish buildings would be tough. But we start putting 24 to 26 day old pigs that are, you know, you know, 12 to 14, 15 pound pigs, that becomes a lot easier proposition, you know, easier for them to care for and uh, makes it better even for the contract growers in those situations. But I think with that, you know, we may be seeing a little bit less of some of the, you know, strep suis and some of those challenges, but we probably see more with rotavirus and E. coli. So just a different profile of diseases. You know, certainly we've still got things with with uh, porcine epidemic, diarrhea viruses. So it really is, though, I think independent of that. And one of the things that, you know, I think our big area of opportunity is we're probably always going to have some sort of disease profile. Just that's the, you know, where we have um, the kind of pig density that we tend to raise pigs in. So it's really more about what things can we do to manage around that. And it's, and it's really got to be just making sure we're spending enough time with those pigs, particularly in that post weaning period. Some of the best contract growers that I've ever worked with are those guys that, man, they were in those barns literally every two hours from the time the sun comes up until that time, you know, the sun goes down. They're in their mat feeding those pigs, getting them up, you know, spending a lot of time up front. But lo and behold, they get those pigs off to a good start three to four weeks later. You know, they generally have great turns and they're not having to spend a lot of time with them afterwards. Uh, You know, and even in some situations where they're somewhat disease challenged, we know that um, mortalities may go higher. But your, you know, your best growers, your best caretakers, uh, when you compare them across the board, they're going to generally have the lowest mortality in those situations. So. You know, in many cases, it comes down to those caretakers that just kind of have a sense or a feel for uh, doing a good job of early identifying those at-risk pigs. You know, now, you know, probably back in my day, 25 years ago, a lot of those guys were guys that maybe started out as independent producers or were guys that guys and gals that were raised on farm, right? So they had some of those inherent animal husbandry skills. So they knew what sort of behaviors to look for when pigs something's just not right, you know, and they knew they had to intervene quick. You know, I think uh, the Zoetis group has done a really nice job with their individual pig care, and they talk about the A, B, and C pig, uh, you know, identifying those pigs early on and getting them treated, uh, and and just seeing that the earlier you identify those at-risk pigs and get them care and treatment, the better outcome that you have. And now the issue that we're having today is our labor gets sourced very differently, and they're not growing up with that kind of background. So we're having to try to train them. And that thinks that's probably really an area for some of the technology development, right? Is uh, we're probably not going to be able to provide that for all our caretakers. So what sort of technology can, hopefully can we, uh, are we able to develop and adapt, you know, for our pig barns that can maybe, uh, you know, with the uh, invention of ear tags and maybe cameras or sensors to be able to say, 
hey, tell us when that pig, there's something, he's not going to the feeder or that pig's not going to the water so that we're making sure we're identifying those pigs early because it's all about identifying the pigs early. I know one of the studies that we looked at one time was a field study and we looked at, and it was a, 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 in, a in a research building where uh, we were getting ready to do a nutrition trial and the sow farm broke with PERS two weeks before getting ready to fill it. So we had to scrap the research or the nutrition trial, but we took the ability and we wanted to look at just treating pigs, you know, whether we got up to them, whether they were an A pig, a B pig, or a C pig. And then we looked at a couple of different antibiotics too, and, and we treated them. We really enrolled pigs, you know, very aggressively that first week, and then we followed them out to three weeks and came back and weighed them and looked at mortality. It was just really interesting, Laura, those pigs if they were if they were identified and treated independent of the treatment if they got treated when they were just an a pig you know their mortality was about 6% if they were a b pig the mortality was about 9% but if those pigs didn't receive medication until they were identified as a c pig those mortality in those pigs were about 30% so it really just kind of reinforced that that thing to say and that whole group you know probably averaged about 10 to 12% it was what you see when a sow farm breaks with pers right those Pigs come out pers infected and they're really tough to keep alive. But it, the very, you know, the difference between eight, catching those pigs earlier and not was just really striking, and it just really reinforced that about independent of whatever disease we're dealing with, the earlier we can catch those pigs and get them the appropriate care and treatment, the better the outcome is going to be. So I think that was really some of the things that we've done with the the five year grant, the survivability grant is. You know, we knew we couldn't tackle all diseases, so we're really kind of trying to focus on some of those management things, which is really to say we've got to do a better job. What things can we do? How can we help producers and caretakers, you know, and really stress that we've got to identify those pigs early on. We can't wait until, you know, those pigs, uh, you know, are, are too far gone before we're getting them identified and, and cared and treated. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up a good point, particularly about our caretakers today, not having that inherent background. And it's it's one that I saw a lot um, where I was before. We can talk sows as well. So working with the baby pig on the sows and identifying when those pigs were falling behind and, and needed to be replaced and, and put on a new sow so that they could get milk. And we'd see the thing, the same thing even right after weaning, right? So how do we help those caretakers? Because today... That might be an A pig with a little bit of a slab-sided, empty belly look, but those pigs could could turn in a heartbeat and tomorrow be that B pig already. So um, you had mentioned technology, but there are any other things that we can do to help people pick that up? Because outside of experience and learning, right, you, you don't recognize that necessarily. And, and that was the question I always got was, how did you know that pig needed it today and not tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, it gets really difficult, right? I mean, the best thing, and I think that's, you know, if you can assign, you know, mentors, and I, you know, I know there's a lot of territory staff, you know, that go out, and they've got lots of barns to cover too. But man, if they can spend time, that was one of the things I think that the individual pig care group team from uh, Zoeta say had put in. They were putting people in, you know, to spend the first two weeks with with caretakers to kind of train them and help them to you know, to spot those pigs early on and, and help them see. Because some of that is, you know, you, you treat them today and then you got to come back tomorrow and see it, right? And and 
And it's tough for that to happen unless you're just in there every day with them and working with them. That's what makes it a little bit difficult. So, um, you know, just be spending a lot of time in there. And I know that's what gets difficult, right? You know, labor is a valuable commodity and, and, you know, we try to spread that labor across as many pigs as we can get to. And then we're not spending as much time with the pigs as we can, but, but that, uh, it gets it gets to be difficult, but you know, particularly in that post weaning period, right up front, that's probably the most important time to really be able to do that. I'm gonna flip gears on you just a little bit, because um, you said something earlier that that triggered a, a flag in my head. You were talking about, of course, Roger Main's work and the value of weaning pigs later and later and later, and of course, um, we recognize during PD that it was more beneficial to to wean them earlier rather than later. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm starting to hear rumblings again, particularly with some of these APP flare-ups, as to whether or not we should be considering that. So what is your take on that when we look at the data out there with Roger's information and, and also then from that health perspective from, from previous experience? What would you, what are you thinking there? Yeah, it's a fine balance, right? I, I think in certain situations, I think there's certainly times where, yeah, you know, particularly if you're dealing with, uh, if you have a sow herd that is um, endemically infected with APP, let's say, um, yeah, that's that's going to be a risk. And I think in some of those situations, that's probably some of the things that, you know, that, that we've seen, right? As we've gone back to an older wean age and, and they probably have more pigs that are positive at weaning, thus more pigs that you have a positive weaning, generally more likely you are to maybe see have an outbreak uh, happen in finishing. So I think there are times, I think over, you know, as a rule, it probably is something that you want to strive for, but there probably are going to be certain health, you know, situations, like you say, during a PED break, you know, uh, uh, or during a APP, you know, if you're having challenges there where, you know, weaning that pig earlier is probably going to be a little bit more beneficial. So it's like always, you know, there's probably a little bit of a, of a give and take uh, with that, depending on the pathogen that you're dealing with, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, before we jump off the wean to finish, um, taking care of, of newly weaned pigs on a topic, I want to ask you if you have any tips to people on how to start pigs. I think that's probably, you mentioned it, it seems like once we get the pigs going after the first three weeks, they're, you know, if, if we do it right, we don't have to worry much after that. So what are Dr. Rademacher's tips and tricks for starting pigs? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing is you just got to really be, you got to be present. They always say you must be present to win. So I think, um, uh, when you're getting ready to place the building, I, I do think there's a fair amount of preparation that gets to be very, very important. Um, you know, things such as making sure the barn's properly heated beforehand. And I know sometimes that can be contentious about, well, in the middle of winter, who's paying the propane bill to heat the slats, right? But there are things about that that really are important, making sure your, you know, your feeders, uh, you know, your feeders are working properly. I, there are some basic husbandry things. I think, you know, just talking to some of my colleagues from, um, you know, who do some ABF production, you know, that they would say it's all about the basics, right? Because we don't, we can't use antibiotics to cover up for some of our management mistakes. You know, one of the things that, that Brad taught me very early on is he said production's all about the details. You know, it's all about the little things. So, 
I, I think uh, keys are, you know, make sure that that barn is set up right. Make sure all your feeders are working. Make sure all your waters are working. Make sure the ventilation's all adjusted. Make sure your fans are clean. Make sure the floors are preheated. You know, make sure you're setting everything, setting everything up for that pig to be successful. Make sure your ventilation's set up. Make sure your louvers are all set up properly. You know, um, we had a really neat Excel sheet, you know, to kind of calculate the ventilation so that the person in the barn, they weren't trying to manually calculate. They just had to change the dial every couple of days. They were just changing a couple of settings, right? So whatever we can do to, to help, uh, you know, make the caretaker successful on that. It, for me, especially on those wean pigs, it's just about being organized and being set up and just making sure all those little small details are uh, all paid attention to ahead of time. You know, think through all those things before those first pigs walk through the door. Mm -hmm. I think those are some excellent points for our listeners. Um, the other piece here, you, you talked about technology a little bit, both in this question and then previously. And um, so I'm going to stick on technology, but I'm going to switch to a, a different part of production. I'm going to talk about PERS for a little bit. Um, that That is, of course, the ever presence that we, we deal with in the United States, and, and people continue to, to ask, how do we fix this? And I, much like you, were finishing schooling about the time we had the mystery pig disease that just hasn't seemed to have left. So um, what are your thoughts on where do we go next? What are the next steps in handling PERS and PERS management programs? Yeah, Laura, they, uh, that was really interesting. I, uh, they were doing, uh, I'll never forget, I was uh, asked to c come over and uh, speak in another country, and they were celebrating 30 years of, you know, PERS, uh, you know, you know, PERS solutions and things like that. And and I, my takeaway, I was taken aback from a little bit of, I was like, I, it's like, are you, it's kind of like, I'm not sure I'd look at it that way. I'm kind of like, I think it's humbled veterinarians for 30 years is more like it. And, and really had one of my bosses say, you know, that's, it's humbled some very smart, you know, veterinarians for a very, very long time. And, and unfortunately, I think what we're seeing here is it's really, a study in Darwin's theory of, of evolution played out over a very short period of time. You know, as I think back to, you know, those early days, Laura, you know, even as, as we've learned, and, and we've learned a lot, and really PERS has taught us a, a ton about, you know, biosecurity and, and, you know, things such as that. So much so as, you know, I would say, although when PED hit, it was certainly devastating, you know, our ability to clean up farms and get cell farms out of PED, I would say fairly quickly, well, a lot of that was done because of successes we had in cleaning sow farms up because of PERS. So PERS certainly has taught us a lot. But unfortunately, I think this, as we've gotten smarter about our strategies to control it, it has created a situation where we have selected for viruses that have to persist longer and uh, are ones that are, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, shed, you know, shed in aerosol more than earlier strains. You know, uh, I can think back to, you know, even like the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, we would have PERS problems and all we would simply do would be is just to not put gilts in a farm for six months. And we'd be very, usually about by three or four months and we'd be testing and we couldn't find PERS virus anymore, right? It was very, very simple, you know, well, relatively simple by today's standards. To be able to get PERS under control in a sow farm. You know, now these days, 
you know, you talk to people and they're closing farms for nine months to a year. And yeah, our, our surveillance methods have gotten a whole lot better at detecting, you know, very low prevalence, but, but, you know, we're finding, you know, we can still find virus after a year. And in some cases, you know, the producers, they're getting to a point where like, well, we can't close the farm forever. You know, if we're going to eliminate it, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to hurt, you know, we're going to have to repopulate the herd, you know, because we just can't live with this any longer. So that's kind of, I think what we're seeing, Laura, is, you know, each new wave, you know, it was, you know, it was kind of the, you know, 2010, 11, 12, it was the 118 to the 126 to, which I'm not a big fan of RFLP, but that's, that's kind of how people name viruses, right? And then, you know, we kind of got through that wave and then it was 2015, 16, 17, it was the 174. And, and, you know, that was really devastating, you know, started to cause, you know, a fair amount of sow mortality, which was kind of rare for PERS viruses. And you hear of lots of abortions in farms, not weaning pigs for, you know, for eight to 10 weeks. And then now here kind of beginning in, uh, you know, the fall of 2020 and really hitting spring and summer of 2021 was the 144 variant 1C. And, you know, and, and, you know, that one, it's like each wave that, and that one was even worse than 174, you know, and so it's, we're just seeing this with each predominant strain that comes out is just so much worse than the one before we, we had, uh, we have a very bright uh, virologist at uh, Iowa State named Dr. Uh, J.Q. Zhang, and uh, he did a really neat kind of quick study. He took a bunch of these 144 viruses, of which this variant 1C, and he took the 174, and then he took some of these older 144 viruses that weren't, you know, maybe were predominant in early 2000s, and he put it into pigs and then, you know, challenged them and then kind of took some, you know, took temperatures, weighed them, um, and then, you know, sacrificed them and harvested and looked at their lungs and looked at how much blood, you know, viruses in the blood. And it was really interesting because he showed a picture. He put a picture of each one of the pens at six days, you know, post, uh, post-inoculation. And you got the negative controls and those pigs are all up walking around. You've got three of these older strains and the pigs are all up walking around looking just like the negative control pigs. And then you've got the two pens of the 174 and this 144 variant 1C, and those pigs are all skinny, laying there piled, nobody's moving, you know. And then he starts to go through and they start to pick through them diagnostically after they do the youth after they euthanize and necropsy them. And you know, the the older strains, maybe they got like 20 to 30 percent of the lung, lung is you know, uh, infected with PERS, and then you get the 174, it's like 85% of the lung, and then the 144 variant 1C. 95% of the lung volume is infected with PERS. And then they look at how much virus is in, is in the blood. And it's like the variant 1C is like, you know, a log higher than 174, which is one log of virus higher than the older strain. So it just kind of reinforces this thing that we're just selecting for viruses that are just that much, you know, more virulent than the ones before. And I think it's just gotten to the point now that, you know, you know, we kind of had, you know, we've got these, you know, we've got these herd closures and offsite breeding projects and vaccine. And we kind of had some tools that we could utilize, you know, that we could, you know, for lack of better terms, we could somewhat live with, right? Now we're getting to the point where we can't live with them anymore, right? So it's getting bad enough that we're going to need different tools in our toolboxes, you know? So that's, that's kind of the, you know, the next thing. And, and, you know, I know the vaccine companies, they've looked at a ton of stuff over the 30 years, you know, we've got, 
different, you know, modified live vaccines. That's probably the best is what we've got, but I don't see that, you know, you know, moving forward, we're going to need other tools in our toolboxes. And, you know, we've kind of all got a crash course in the virus with, you know, with COVID, right. Looking at other options. So, you know, we've got to hope at some point, you know, we got to, you know, are there going to be older antivirals in human medicine that are used for other things or ones that maybe can be repurposed? Because, you know, one thing, you know, I could see is like, we got to get these newer viruses, you know, that much virus, we got to get that back to maybe where the old, you know, the old, we got to take some of the virus out of the, out of the body, right? And are there antivirals that can help with that? You know, there's, you know, a lot of some people have been exploring with ivermectin because, hey, that's been used for a lot of viral diseases around the world. It's cheap, readily accessible. And so we need to keep exploring other options and things like that, because it, that's the unfortunate thing. The, this virus is evolving much faster than our ability to you know, produce new tools to, to be able to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting. I wasn't aware of that work. So that that's a very good point and, and a good challenge to the industry to think about how do we help minimize that viral load in the pigs, especially if the strains are are developing these these higher replications of you, if you will, of a virus within the body. So that's that's actually a very interesting point. Well, Chris, I, unfortunately, our time is up, but we could talk, I'm sure, for another hour on on what's going on in the PERS world. Would you mind sharing with the audience just a few key points that you'd like for them to to take away from today's conversation? Yeah, I you know I think uh, probably the biggest thing I think um, for me is is I think about the daily pig care. You know, independent of the disease, and and I know we didn't really have much chance to talk about it, but this identifying the pig, and I think it even extends into the sow farm as well as just identifying as we approach sow mortality, there's been some work we've been working on. You've got to identify these animals quickly, you know, and kind of the neat thing about sows is, you know, in gestation, you know, uh, stalls, we got the ability to see their daily feed intake, right? So that's, that's kind of a neat indicator to say if that sow's not eating, there's a reason why she's not eating, right? So it's, but I think, and we're seeing some mortality reductions in some farms that are putting attention and focus in that area. So it really just tells me, you know, yeah, we're going to have these diseases, you know, we're going to keep working on them with vaccines and therapeutics, hopefully and technology. But in the interim, I think the challenge really is we've just got to make sure we're in there with the caretakers and teaching them, look for that, those pigs that aren't up, you know, they're not up walking around, you know, not in there eating. They're the ones laying in the corner. If that sow is not getting up to eat, that ought to make you take a second look at her. And I really think it's about when in doubt, treat, you know, I mean, if that, if she's not looking quite right, or if that pig's not looking right, there's probably a reason for that, you know, trust your gut a little bit with that. So, cause I really think there's a lot of this, you know, between whether it's a growing pig or the sow that, that they're, they're giving you cues. You just gotta, you know, we've got to be sure we're working with training our people to kind of hone in on those cues. And, and if we're in there, you know, giving them the attention and treatment and care as prescribed from our veterinarian on our treatment protocols, you'll see you'll see improvements in mortality from that so i really think early identification and treatment is the is the key i think we get so wrapped up in what we're treating with or what vaccine you know we get so so wrapped up in that uh, that we kind of forget about the basics you know it's 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 we got to make sure we're in there looking at them and and 
we're uh, evaluating them. And if there's something that doesn't feel right about it, make sure we're giving them care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Trust your gut, for sure. It is time to our famous three. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up our time, Chris, we like to ask our guest speakers just a couple of questions. Um, The first question we like to ask is, do you have a favorite swine resource that you'd recommend to the group? Uh, Well, I would kid my nutrition friends if I knew knew a good nutrition book, I'd throw that one around. But since I don't know a good one, I'll have to resort to my, my old standby has always been diseases of swine. That was Back in my days early on, you know, laptop computers were just kind of the thing. And, and I, I remember getting a, a CD of diseases of swine. So I would have my laptop and my CD of diseases of swine. If there was something I wasn't sure on, I'd be go out in my car and take a look at it. So, yep, I, uh, I still, uh, that's probably still my favorite swine, swine resource uh, of today. I mean, it's obviously written for veterinarians, but, you know, there's just a lot of great information in there for everybody. So that's kind of my go-to on that for sure. Absolutely. How about something that's not related to pigs? Is there a book that you would recommend to the audience? I would tell you, you know, if you're thinking about from a personal development uh, standpoint, one that uh, I had the opportunity to be involved in a leadership academy I thought was really good uh, was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. You know, I think just from a personal organization, understanding yourself, understanding others, you know, I, I, and how to, how to get the most out of yourself. I would say the seven habits, you know, are, there's quite a few things from there that I've kind of taken and, um, and, uh, implemented, uh, I think in various points throughout my life that have kind of stuck with me, you know, so much so we kind of had, went through that and, you know, had the old planner, you know, the organizer, the Covey planner and organizer, but, you know, now I've kind of adapted that to a computerized model. But there are things I think I adapted from that book that I was able to uh, to utilize and uh, put into a computerized model. But yeah, there's, I would say from that standpoint, that's probably, I'm not a huge reader. So that was probably one that, that I did certainly, uh, um, one that uh, that was really good, I thought for me and, and kind of helped me along my uh, personal journey. Absolutely. That is a good book. Um, so the last question I have for you focuses around um, envisioning someone in your mind that you identify as being successful and what characteristic or trait about them stands out to you that you think has allowed them to be successful? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, it was probably by my last boss, to be honest with you, Steve Pullman, which is my vet friends would find hilarious because he's a nutritionist, right? But Steve was, he was just fantastic at, because he was really always invested in his people, right? And most people who have ever seen Steve speak up and challenge speakers at a meeting wouldn't guess that. But that was, Steve was actually a 
some interactions I had had him on on the on the industry event was part of the reason I went to work for him, right? Uh, you know, and, and he was really good about, you know, he's obviously very organized, you know, and there's some, a lot of things I learned from him, you know, just in terms of he would sit down on a Sunday evening and have a planning meeting with himself, right? So he would plan out his week, you know, and use his organizer and make sure he had everything set up for the week. So I, I try to, to do some of that. You know, he's really good about having goal reviews with his people, quarterly goal reviews. And I think that's important because I don't think if you don't do that, it, 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 I mean, there's tangible things that happen on there about holding people accountable. And you go, I always go back and look at the, you know, what was your last quarter? What'd you put on your goal review? How successful were you? What things that you, you know, want to get done for the next quarter? But, you know, there was always a section on, you know, what's some of your personal goals too. Cause you sit there and think if you don't have that organized interaction, how uh, how often are you, would you really sit down and think about that, even as from an employee standpoint? So, you know, I think that's a good emotional, um, you know, deposit to make with your employees. So I would say to those of you who manage people, that's, you know, that's something you really ought to think about. I thought that was really, I thought that was highly effective in, in motivating your people, you know, and really just show them that you care and, and some things like that. And And I think for me, one thing that I learned too was, um, in, in my current position, because, you know, I, I work across a lot of different departments and then get to interact with a lot of people and I get involved in a lot of stuff. You know, I'm a person that doesn't say no very easily, so I can get involved in a lot of stuff. Uh, for me, it's kind of the meeting creates the action, right? So I tend to use my Outlook calendar and and I've got a, I, if I, I have all these things piled up, but if I schedule a meeting, then that goes to the top of the priority list, right? So it's always important for me to kind of schedule meetings with people to kind of sometimes keep things moving along. So that was, that was another thing that I'd learned from Steve was that the meeting creates the action. So it was always good, important to make sure you have those milestone meetings to keep the ball moving on certain projects. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's certainly a quote I've heard him say before too, is meeting creates the action for sure. Yep. Well, wonderful, Chris. We we do want to thank you for your time today. It was very in, informational and uh, certainly gave us some things to think about in terms of disease and how to start pigs and, and identifying pigs that need a little bit more attention than others. And and so again, I do want to thank you for your time today. We greatly appreciate it. And for our audience today, just a reminder, this is Dr. Chris Rademacher, who is a clinical veterinarian uh, at the Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Chris, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Laura. It's my pleasure. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to Elite Swine Nutritionist dot com.